0: Hello there and welcome to another episode of the 1201 podcast. I'm Callum Roper and today I am joined by Callum Watt. Good afternoon, Callum. Good afternoon. And I'm joined by Ollie Walwyn.
1: Hello, both Callums and everyone.
0: Yes, hello. And uh, we've got a interesting lineup today. Again, we've had another political week, much like the weather at the moment. It's going from one thing to another. We've got the kill the bill protests up and down the country. Certainly the mood seems to be shifting amongst the general public and protests are not just in the capital, Bristol and other major cities, but they are indeed spreading. And we'll be talking about Lincoln specifically and a protest that was held this weekend just gone. We'll also be talking about the latest COVID news. So obviously, as we are recording, Boris Johnson has made a Downing Street statement. Uh, he's seeming he's going to be moving on to the next stage of the roadmap to freedom or so-called roadmap to freedom. And we'll be talking about those measures and some of the other controversies that have been coming out of the government this last week gone. And finally, we'll be talking about Keir Starmer. It has now been a year since he has been labor leader. We'll be talking about that year, which has very much been marred by controversy and COVID So we'll be getting into that and then having a look to the future. But returning to Lincoln and returning to the Kill the Bill protests, uh, as I say, we've had our first Kill the Bill protest here in Lincoln. I'd say it's very well attended indeed. What we're going to do is just listen to a couple of clips from that, including something from our very own Callum Watt. My name's
2: Callum Watt. I'm the Secretary of Lincoln Labour Party. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, I'm not a barrister or anything. I've been the the okay. a, anything like that, but I'm here because I believe it's my civic duty to be here and to defend the rights to protest. I believe it's a fundamental human <laughs> right. Of course, normally this time of year, we, me and my comrades would be out extolling you to vote Labour, and we're doing it in every way that we can and i'm sure others from other parties would be doing it as well it's a part of our normal democracy but that democracy is now under threat and not just from covid it's from under threat from this government as gavin said earlier 130,000 people have been killed by this government's complete negligence a lack of care for us in terms of in a desperate attempt to protect this broken economic system that we suffer under every single day. They are scared of us as a consequence. There are people who are homeless, living in poverty, who are scared for the future. And all because of this government, all because of this system. And that's why things like the bill are being proposed, because they know that we are a threat to them. They need to crack down our protests. And we must not let them. Because we, my friends, are not just sleepwalking into an authoritarian state. They are tilting us headlong into it. And if we don't stand up right now, in the weeks, months and years to come, to kill this bill and every other attempt that comes with it, we are going to end up living under an authoritarian regime. If you believe in liberty, you don't have to be a socialist to believe in liberty. You don't even have to be a liberal to believe in liberty. You need to stand together and defend your human rights, your human rights to protest. This is where we stop the rot. And I would call on anyone who is interested in politics, anyone who is any politician has a duty to stand up for those human rights, to stand with these protests, be here today, be here in in those future debates. And vote against this bill. Thank you very much, comrades. We've
3: done this before, no So, a couple of years ago, I was on TV and talking to some Tories because they'd been found in content of Parliament. I think we need to remember. about the ways our Prime Minister speaks, about other groups in our society. I'm thinking as well with everything that's gone on with Brexit, how many times have people been lied to when they were told this is going to save money, this is going to be a great thing for the country? I mean, I'm not going to agree, I'm a bit of a when it comes to that one. However, I think this bill is going to be a significant change to our rights. And if we accept that now, what is going to be further down the line? What else will be stopped from doing? Will that leak into places like this, where we're protesting on the street? Is it going to go onto the internet? Me myself, I'm a keyboard warrior. I get online and that's how I do my protesting. We're seeing as well, I'm finding within activists online, that their (laughs) accounts are being shut down. Being blacklisted, they've been banned for 30 days for saying simple things like we are turning into a fascist state. So it's really, really good to see so many people out today. Um, it, it fills me up. I'm here with my daughter today, and I want her to see what we have to do to be able to keep our rights. Only the child, we have to be as to get our point across that this is apparently illegal even though nothing is actually going wrong. No one is hurting anyone by doing this. I wouldn't have any of my basic rights if it wasn't for protesting. I am a non-binary bisexual person and I and if it wasn't for protesting,
0: obviously listening to that we see that there is some really passionate views there and I'm going to ask Callum firstly to just introduce the the protest in Lincoln. I was unfortunately out of town that day so could not make it but I'm aware of many comrades in the Labour Party that attended and indeed people from across the political spectrum that attended the uh, protest um, and indeed people that really don't have an affiliation to any political party. So, Callum, do you just want to introduce the protest and what the mood was like on the day?
4: Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, obviously, you could, as you could hear in some of those speeches, um, it took a while for it to get off the ground because um, it was it was organised slightly oddly. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I got an email as um, Secretary of Lincoln Labor Party. Someone sent me an email saying, are, are we organising anything? Um, around the Kill the Bill um, protests. And the thing is, I, I've been neck deep in election uh, planning for the last uh, few weeks, but I said to them, you know, if, if anything does come up, um, I'm quite happy to, to promote it to, to local members. Um, and also, from our perspective, we're, we're under perder as well, so it's very difficult organisationally for our CLP to organise anything like that. Um, but I'll make sure people show up to it. Um, and I also, uh, and then in a couple of days later and I sent uh, a couple of emails to people to try and see it, find out if there was anything happening. Um, and then, uh, I, I think it was uh, maybe the next day, actually, um, I got a, I saw that in the Lincolnite, there was someone who was organizing, um, a protest, someone called, uh, James Jackson, uh, who I haven't met yet, uh, because they, didn't seem to be that visible at the process themselves, but apparently they are a 18-year-old college student, uh, as in a student at Lincoln College. Uh, just in case we happen to have some American viewers who might be confused, that's sort of 15 to 18, so he's an 18-year-old. Um, he was apparently negotiating with the police um, over it uh, and seems to have done an excellent job, by the way. They, they deserve an awful lot of praise, um for their work it went really really well um one of the reasons it went well as a couple of the uh, protesters pointed out in in the speeches was that the police didn't show up at all um i think they had a van parked uh, about 20 or 30 yards away initially um, and then they just sort of disappeared, I think even before the speeches had even begun. So uh, that's, uh, I think that maybe... And there was no trouble, of course, no no issues at all. You had a couple of cranks, um, one anti-masker who spoke, um, but they were roundly booed. Um, I, I think that's um, the, the positives and negatives of having an open mic. Uh, the positive, obviously, is that you can... Uh, hear a lot of great speeches. It's a, a great opportunity um, for people who may not have spoken as protest before to actually um, step up and say something. I think that's really really positive. Um, and, and if if you get the odd uh, crank, then then may I think that's a, the price worth paying. I think uh, most of the time um, there was just a, a, a single megaphone there. Um, lots of people. We initially got there. It started I think at two o'clock um it was people were sort of standing around socially distancing as best as they um could um you know probably be closer than we should have been but obviously you end up talking to people but everyone had their masks on so i think it was reasonably safe obviously it's all outdoors um so everyone's standing in the semicircle. it was kind of awkward initially because there was no one who was comparing right um, but someone had brought a megaphone, and uh, we had uh, Gavin, who's the uh, vice chair of the Trades Council, who kicked it off with a uh, a brief speech. Certainly brief for him, um, and uh, I, I chose to you know keep my comments brief as well. Because as I say, uh, and as you heard, in I think I only spoke for a minute or two. Uh, my primary goal really was to show that. Lincoln Labour Party, which I was representing, and um, I was quite flattered, pleased to hear uh, people appreciating that we were there, um, just to show that Lincoln Labour Party basically is unequivocally uh, on the side of human rights and civil rights, uh, and on the side of of the oppressed as well, Um, because of course it's. uh, I think I, I should say as well that the the way that this bill would be treating minorities particularly uh, you know travelers have been talked about a lot um i think we need to demonstrate uh that we are unequivocally on the side of those people and this bill needs to be struck down in the dirt where it belongs um, because this is as we've discussed on previous podcasts a real affront Uh, to civil society and democracy and what was really nice though is having done my speech having played my part you did see uh, as I say lots of people who had never spoken before Um, I was quite impressed with uh, the chalkback girls uh, who spoke uh, chalkback women I should say um, who organised the um, uh, the I'm sure what to call it basically but the the response to the Sarah Everett uh, murder um, in the wake of that uh, they organised people to go out and basically mark the pavement um, with um, slogans and, and uh, against gender violence for the 97% it was really quite inspiring to see, I hope we can get them on at some point to talk about it um, and I, I, and and you heard their speeches there. It was really clearly they'd never. I don't think they'd spoken at protests before. And I hope we'll see them again. I did actually get to speak to them briefly afterwards, and they seemed, bless them, really overwhelmed um, to be getting uh, all of the support that they were getting. Lots of people wanting to take chalk off them and mark the pavement and so on. Um, so yeah, really, really, really positive. Nice to uh, nice to see a lot of people there. Um, who I, I haven't seen, uh, for over a year, albeit obviously, as I say, uh, with their masks up and, um, I finished, uh, the protest by talking to the, the legal observer, uh, who was there with his bib and his notepad. And he said, it's, it's great that I've got nothing, great that he's got nothing to do. Um, and, uh, then we wrapped it up. So really peaceful protest, no trouble at all. Um. And I think a really good advert, I suppose, for, for uh, civil acts of peaceful protest um, in Lincoln. And if this uh, bill goes ahead and becomes an act, that sort of thing could be made legal, right? Because we were, uh, I think the police, uh, generally speaking, we, we don't have too, much, too many problems with the police in Lincolnshire, uh, or we haven't done in the past. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that in Lincoln we tend to be protesting in pedestrian areas. We're not blocking roads, so there might be practical reasons why the police don't tend to move in. But we're still bo- blocking, you know, most of the pavement. If the shops were open, you know, it would be annoying people. Um, and it, the bill does quite clearly say, say that you know you can they can ban a protest simply for it being annoying. So you know and you give these people powers they might they might well use them so it is very dangerous we shouldn't be um complacent at all um but it was heartening to see lots of people come out and bear in mind as well that i also knew that there were many many people who would have liked to attend but couldn't because they because they're shielding um, um primarily um and they and of course their health has to come first so that's quite understandable so that's 100, 150 people who were there um, or attended uh, during the sort of one or two hours we were there is It's just a fraction, really, I think, of the support that it, it has. And I think uh, and I think it will grow. Um, we, we had a much bigger protest for the prorogation, anti-prorogation thing a couple of years ago. So I think there's a strong activist base in Lincoln that's willing to stand up for civil society. Um, really nice to see in other parts of the country as well so um, hopefully the builders gets um, struck down but there's a resistance movement that's there uh, if it doesn't Um, and i'm fully supportive of that
0: absolutely and thank you for giving us the lowdown and one of the things that's intrigued me about this this wave of of protests across the country and certainly protests in the last year throughout the covid pandemic is that we've seen almost uh new generation of of activists coming through you you've spoken about some of the people that had never before taken part in protests like this before um, and it seems to be this is a defining a defining moment for a generation we've spoken about the uh, the student protests previously on the podcast and the the radicalizing impact that hit, had on young activists such as yourself callum as a perfect example so Ollie do you think that this could be the point again, where we're going to see another generation, um, radicalized and given a real enthusiasm for protesting and standing up for their rights.
1: I mean, I, I sure hope so, because, um, as has been, uh, has been alluded to on, on our previous podcast, there's a lot, um, there's a lot more coming around the corner, which could, well, basically it's, it's just going to be worse. Um, for example, you know, catastrophic climate change, um, and you know there has been um, some very kind of uh, successful um, protests in the past few years by Extinction Rebellion, and I think that's another um, kind of way to to energize people, and I think that's really what they have done. Um, I think there's just such a such a whole host of issues which which face young people today, um, which which arguably I think has never really faced generations on this scale before, you know, you've got, you've got stuff like the, the Sarah Ivar vigil, you've got black lives matter, you've got, uh, the climate crisis, civil liberties, you know, you know, everything. And it's just a whole, um, kind of plethora of social issues, which I think, um, you know, young people are, are really kind of waking up to the fact that they have the power to, um, to, to make change um, in, in the right places and you know, actually hold the government to account um, as, as effective opposition rather than through um, necessarily a political party. So I, I think that's a really positive thing to see. I, I think it's, um, as Callum says, um, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's gonna be a lot more important moving forward um, to, to have a lot of um, kind of public support for these issues.
0: Absolutely. You know, I think that if this, this bill does become an act, I think protest, regardless of whether it's considered legal or not, is going to be a key way for people in expressing their voice on some of the biggest issues that affect us as a society and, and as, a, as a species. We We do essentially face extinction if we don't change some of our behaviours, if we don't change the system that we live in. So I think that it's important that people are realising that their voice matters and they can stand up and be heard. And obviously, as Callum eloquently put, the state is 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 scared of this. The state realises the, the the Conservative Party doesn't want people to be heard because that voice doesn't agree with them. That voice doesn't agree with exploitation. So... I mean, one of the things that that Callum said, uh, picking out from what he said uh, that we listened to earlier, um, you said that we're going headfirst into authoritarianism, and I think many of us would agree with that. But how do we get that message across to people outside of the Labour Party that might not necessarily, or indeed the the, um, civil... um, Activist movement we're seeing forming around us, whether it be in regards to freedom of speech and protest, or whether it be in regards to the climate crisis or issues of race. I think there's a real broad coalition that's being formed of people fighting and standing up. But how do we get that message outside of that bubble? Because it does hit a block. Certainly in cer- some areas of society, and you only have to look at some of the negative comments on social media, you can see that a lot of people. Say that they disagree with what the protesters are doing, or they think that they're wasting their time. So, how do we make that next step, Callum? I think it all comes down to uh, media, basically.
4: I mean, we're just—you know—we're just doing our thing here. This is our our sort of local po- podcast, and so on. But you also have a lot more, much bigger players, people like Navarro Media, Owen Jones in America. You've got Jacobin. Uh, the Young Turks uh, in this country. We've relaunched Tribune as well. Um, there's all of these sorts of media, which I think is helping to inform that generation of activists. Um, and I think the, the sticking point, I suppose, is that it's not nec- that that sort of media isn't going to reach um, older generations, more conservative, more committed conservative people, necessarily. But it only has to grow so much to the point where we're actually well informed with proper counter arguments, and that's sort of what we need. Because neoliberalism, it's from the 1980s onwards, captured common sense. You see things like uh, the, the idea, that the primary one being the idea that the state's finances are the same as as your household finances. That's a a typical example. Um, These sorts of forms of alternative media are forming the new common sense. And once you have people uh, sort of uh, uh, listening and understanding and reading that sort of media, um, then you can also start to help people to understand civil and, and, and human rights, which we don't really... I think, strongly emphasise enough in in places like school, which is where it it all starts, Um, which is the other point. Once uh, what we ultimately require um, as a a means to an end, if you like, but also we need to get there first, is once Labour is in power again or we have a more progressive government, we need to really, really push Citizenship education, we need to teach people about uh, the, the real history of the British Empire, for instance, um, our the importance of trade unions in shaping our modern world, things like the weekend, the bank holiday, which we're enjoying at the moment, all those sorts of things. Um, that we need so we need to be educating people from a young age as well, and we need to be supporting alternative media uh, in order to get out into into uh, into the public. And I think just as importantly, um, we need to be teaching our own activists um, as well uh, how to communicate as well. I think I mean the Labour Party is pretty typical for just using activists as leaflet fodder. Uh, and so on we're we're damn well damn good at that as well but it's very enjoyable i've been leafleting myself today yesterday day before and so on um but we need to be there needs to be more than that we need to be you know winning arguments uh in the media and uh, and elsewhere as well and forming a new common sense not just on economic issues but also reminding people that you live in a liberal democracy And everything that you cherish that's good about that liberal democracy is uh, under threat right now. Um, And you really need to start paying attention and and standing up
0: to defend it. Otherwise, it will be gone very, very soon. Ollie, you wanted to come in on how we stop the rot there.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Callum's kind of um, analysis there of what we we need to do now is so important. Um, But on the issue of the media... Um, I think it is primarily the number one reason um, in in how we kind of make change, and that, I think that's why it's so important. Um, but I also think the the challenge is almost insurmountable when you have um, startups like I don't even know if we could call it a startup actually, like GB News, which is um, which is coming into to end this this year, I think it is, um, and you know they plan to. Uh, you know, six thousand five hundred hours of television um a year once it's been set up, and they have the the money backed by you know billionaires to to just hire hundreds of, of, of journalists just right off the bat, um and it's it's kind of scary actually, um because a lot of um lefty kind of news and media uh, they rely a lot on on donations and on you know regular people, so when you have when you have um, these news news organizations owned by you know the likes of uh, billionaire kind of press barons like Rupert Murdoch and and you know other the other people that own the press is like a handful of people that own most of the press in this country, and and they control massive amounts of public opinion. I think it's it's extremely difficult to um, build effective uh, media opposition when you when you're faced with these problems.
0: Absolutely, and uh, I think currently one of the biggest problems with the media is that what is considered opinion is often now considered news. Certainly, with the uh, this GB News channel being set up, it's news-based opinion is essentially what it is, and that's 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 fine. People can have opinion, as we know, we do live in a, a an allegedly free society where people can say what they want. But the problem is there's no balance. There's no balance to what is being said. It's all from a certain angle. And it tends to be an angle of dividing people, picking on minorities and ensuring that actually common sense, as we would call it, is not actually heard. Common sense in their eyes is exploitation of people. Common sense is polluting our environment to the point of destroying Habitats for not just animals, but ourselves. So we do need to change what common sense is. We need to rewrite what common sense is, and that's completely doable because you only have to remember 50, 60 years ago, common sense was completely different. Things were shifting. Um, the, The focus on the welfare state was much greater and we've since rolled back as a perfect example of that. So common sense can change. And in order for a positive change to happen, common sense has to change pretty soon, if, if, if you ask me. Callum, you wanted to come in there?
4: I just wanted to make a point about GB News because it's obviously not, even though it's going to get all of these journalists, all of these big money backers and so on, it's not actually going to have a huge share of the viewership. It's not going to have a big share of the market because the BBC has such a huge share and Sky is well established as well and ITV and so on, you know, all of these. Are, and I don't think people, humans are creatures of habit. I don't think they'll change that much. But if they even get a slight share of the market, things like GB news as well, what they can do is start to influence the others um, in much the same way, I suppose. Um that UKIP influenced the political sphere just by being there, right? Um, and the BBC, to some extent, is already influenced by outlets like the Daily Mail. They often seem to take the same, not the same editorial line, but they take a lot of the same cues from the Daily Mail as in terms of what they're going to report on. Um, so I think that's 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 the danger there. That people aren't really directly watching uh, GB News, but it will influence the rest of the media. Um, And at the moment, we have quite strict laws about how, you know, what can be said against opinion uh, in the UK. Um, I'm sure that these backers for GB News would like to make it like Fox in the United States, where things are very opinion based, uh, as you alluded to earlier. Um, that's not possible at the moment. But obviously, with them putting people like Paul Dacre, the uh, editor of the Daily Mail, in charge of Ofcom, the body that's supposed to regulate all of this, you can see there's a coherent plan in place to change that um, if they can. And it's a, it's a government-led initiative in that respect, which means that we have to have, as we're going to talk about uh, later, um, effective parliamentary opposition as, as well as civil resistance. Um, because as I often say, you know, democracy, it's a sandwich, right? You've got the, um, formal structures of governments, which is the bread and butter uh, of liberal democracy, but it's going to be a pretty damn bland sandwich if you don't have the, the, the sweet filling of democracy, uh, and, and civil activism in between and direct resistance and so on, all mixed in together, um, uh, equally if you don't if you if all you ever do is protest and you don't vote it'll all fall apart in your hands so i mean you need to be voting uh in may for um first of all but you also need to be out on the streets so and you need to be listening to alternative media like us uh, and like navara media and and knowing uh, jones and so on
0: absolutely and uh if you are listening to us thank you once again i think we we are hoping to change the direction of travel in terms of the media because we can see that. So we are trying our best. So we'll move on. I think that we've really got into that. And I, I don't doubt that we'll hear more about the bill going forwards um, as to whether it becomes an act remains to be seen. There seems to be a lot of resistance, but you certainly wouldn't put it beyond this government to force it through as it is. But on to COVID, as I said at the top of the show, we were expecting an announcement from Boris Johnson, which happened at five o'clock on the 5th of April, for those listening later in the week. And he has confirmed that we will be moving to the next stage of the uh, roadmap to freedom in quotation marks. Uh, He he likes a a branding of, of his different plans. But what does this entail? This will entail non-essential shops reopening, gyms reopening, and outdoor hospitality reopening. Um, Boris Johnson confirmed that on the 12th of April, he will be in a beer garden, um, as will many people, I imagine, certainly if the weather is as nice as it has been in the last week. He also uh, he had a discussion or he was asked a question about the so-called vaccine passports, Um, as to whether they would be needed for indoor venues or to access certain uh, areas of the services sector. Um, it it was very much quite squirming out of it. As as we saw this week, there was quite a bit of pushback on the idea of a vaccine passport from across Parliament. Uh, People from Ian Duncan Smith through to Jeremy Corbyn saying that the vaccine passport... Um, as it's being branded, would be an attack on our civil liberties. Um, we'll get into whether that is the case a bit later on. But he said that um, certification, as he calls it, may come in at a later date, but there's certainly no concrete plans, which I think he uh, might have to back down on this because he might be losing his back benches. So, uh, Callum, looking at the numbers of where we're at with COVID looking at the situation we're in, we're approaching summer. The NHS is certainly the pressures off for now. Is it right that we're lifting the restrictions and going into this next stage of the roadmap or are we going too fast as we have done before?
4: I mean, we will not know until, um, after the summer, I suspect, um, I think, given that the vaccine is rolling out and the weather is improving, I think it's inevitable that the restrictions would be lifted. Um, I think it does make sense. Um, We don't seem to be seeing uh, a significant rise in cases um, in line with those, but obviously as we know that there there is also a lag. So. I, it's very difficult to to answer that question in in in, in principle um what i c- can say is i'm definitely against the idea of the vaccine passport um i think that the idea i mean if we're going to go to the pub we should all be going together right um that, that's that's the way i see it and if you because it's just a, it would just be another way of dividing people i think you know I've got I, I I've got my vaccine have you got yours uh to be honest I don't think I don't think the hospitality sector really should be opened up at all until uh, the vaccine rollout was complete or or almost complete I mean we're not there yet so uh, I, I I'm looking forward to going to the pub um I'm sure I will be going eventually um i did last year but i i just there's this kind of nagging fear that i've mentioned in previous podcasts that although the vaccine rollout is going well i fear it will be undermined by the restrictions themselves being loosened and you know mathematically the more opportunities there are for the virus to jump from person to person more chances there are of mutations and if there are more mutations that puts the effectiveness of those vaccines at risk you know i'm not an epidemiologist i'm not a scientist but that we have seen that happen at, towards the end of last year and the important thing to remember i think is if we don't get it right this summer then we could see another spike come next winter as well um Someone mentioned before we were recording that, um, you know, Chris Whitty and other uh, scientists have been talking about dealing with this as a normal part of our life, like, like the flu is. Um, I agree with that. Um, you know, it's probably it's not we've, we haven't as a species eradicated many diseases, but we've learned to overcome them anyway. You know, because we've made ourselves immune to them, and so on. This is just one more uh, vaccine that children uh, will have to take, and that's that's fair enough. But this is another moment of danger, as Boris Johnson himself put it, um, and I'm, I don't trust him to, to 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 get it right. But as we've
0: said all the way through, um, I hope that they do. <laughs> Absolutely. I think we can all share that sentiment, that's for sure. Um, We hope they are getting it right. Um, I think where I was going with that question was that we've seen a number of instances um, over the last few weeks, or at least since the 29th, so the last week or so, where big crowds have been gathering in in parks up and down the country. There was a couple of incidents in Lincoln where the police have had to be called to disperse large groups of people. And I'm worried personally that the messaging's wrong. It feels like, as I say in quotation marks about the roadmap to freedom, the reason why I say that is because words like that are quite emotive. And once you make what is a very serious and I'm assuming scientific process of opening up the country and the economy, you need to have it as plain and simple as possible, as easy to understand as possible. And as as, as great as it sounds, the roadmap to freedom, people are taking it far too literally, far too early. Um, eventually, we will have a situation, hopefully, where we can go about as normally as possible. But as it currently stands, the restrictions are very much uh, on top of us. Things are still going to be shut. There's going to be a lot of restrictions in place. Um, the rule of six is, is a key example of that. So we need to be careful. But also we can start to look towards the future with a bit of hope and a bit of positivity that we might have at least half a summer where we can enjoy normality. Ollie, what's your take on the current situation then with the roadmap to freedom?
1: Well, I think that the phrasing of that is, uh, you know, it's, it's classic Johnsonism. It's, it's emotive language, um, you know, designed to elicit a, a real kind of emotive response from people. Um, and I think you know that's that's the kind of thing he's used throughout the whole um, the whole pandemic it's his, it's his trademark um, I, I, I think um, I share a cautiously uh, kind of optimistic view on this um, you know I really hope they get it right but it could go either way couldn't it and after the year we've had, I think uh, Callum mentioned do we really trust this prime minister this government to um, safely open the country up even after the uh, you know amazing efforts which have, have been by the, the NHS and uh, especially the, the vaccine rollout, um, we are in terms of you know vaccines you know quite far ahead of, of other countries in in Europe who are now kind of suffering from a, a third wave. Unfortunately, you know they're going back into lockdown, and it, it feels kind of strange that we're going to be heading in the other direction because throughout the pandemic we've been one of the you know it's been handled one of the worst countries in the world um so to now be um to now be opening things up i i don't know how i feel about it i think a lot of people will will feel like this as well um really kind of in two minds about it um in in terms of pubs and things like that and um you know traveling around the country um I, i think you know alcoholism i would argue is you know quite a quite a, an intrinsic part of, of our culture. You know, a lot of people um enjoy a drink and, you know, a lot of people love to go to the pub and, you know, fair enough. But I think there are more important things at the moment. Um, I think it's it's not necessarily a, a policy which is necessarily se- sensible um, when there are other, you know, priorities, I would argue. But I can understand it to an extent because, you know, after the year we've had, I think everyone needs a you know, point down the local.
0: Absolutely. Um, I think y- y- you touched on an in- interesting point there, Olly, because actually I think this has highlighted the lack of diversity in our economy, that we are that reliant on the services sector. We are that reliant on restaurants and pubs and shops to be open for our economy to function. Which, is, which goes right into the neoliberal paradigm that we exist in. Because we do not have an economy that's fit for purpose, clearly. If you take that element out, there's nothing left, or at least nothing left that's going to support the economy. So I think it really has highlighted a problem. You want to come back?
1: Yeah, um, that's just uh, an intrinsic part of our um, of our economy now, isn't it? The, the gig economy, where everything is... Um, you know, paid by the hour, uh, minimum wage, it's extremely um, disproportionately represented in, in young people who primarily kind of serve in, in uh, you know, bars and restaurants. And I would argue, you know, young people have been disproportionately affected by the pandemic as well in terms of uh, economically and also socially. Um, so I think, you know, that's a massive problem. I don't think it's talked about enough.
0: Absolutely. And Callum, how do we move forward then? Um, How do we address those issues? Because clearly it's a systemic problem where it doesn't work at the best of times. People are out of jobs, they're impoverished. Uh, Inflation is higher than their wages rising at the best of times. But now we have mass unemployment and people on furlough because the economy cannot function under the current circumstances. Where do we go next?
4: I think we need to reorganize our economy massively. Um, while the pandemic's going on, um, people should be paid to self-isolate, first of all. That's, that's one of the first priorities. It's not going to happen. This government's not going to do it. Um, but it would have been the most sensible uh, thing to do um, so that it everyone in society, not just um, middle class people and I am one of these people by the way who benefited at least when they did have a job um, who are able to work from home and then see their um, savings rise as a consequence. Working class people didn't benefit from that. At all. people who uh, who many many poor people were thrown out of work or were vulnerable um, should have been paid. To just stay at home um, in the interests of public safety, in the national interest, effectively, um, as we often say, for many other issues, but apparently not for this massive issue of public health. Um, in the long run, though, you have huge opportunities going forward because you, with the climate crisis as well, you know we've got to replace every single gas boiler in the country with an electric one. Um, many, many other appliances as well that we use from day to day need to be replaced. Um, gradually, we need to replace our um, electric car stock with uh, our, our petrol car stock with electric ones. Um, of, that can't happen overnight because that's actually more destructive to the environment than it would be uh, to do it more gradually. But there's an, in, there's an industry there. Um, there's got to be infrastructure Huge amounts of infrastructure put in place to service electric cars as well, um, and of course we have to move away from uh, electric cars onto uh, using more environmentally friendly um, uh, public transport, which needs to be wherever possible free as well to encourage people to use it, and you know, and that will require massive uh, public subsidies. So these are huge huge changes that i think are coming and by the way you've already got um businesses talking about this by the way they're ahead of the, the labor party uh on this um talking about the three-day working week as well which uh will sorry the four-day working week not the three-day yet yeah, four-day work, working week um which will also help with unemployment because if people aren't being forced to work yeah, you know, five-day weeks. Then there's more jobs available. These are things which need to enter the common sense, as I say, through the methods I mentioned earlier, uh, through alternative media, and through the discourse in our political mainstream as well. Um, that's how we move forward. That's how we move forward, Callum. Um, and you know, these changes are coming, whether you like it or not. And if they're resisted, you're going to see. Uh, ever increase the alternative is ever increasing authoritarianism to try and prop up the crumbling um, status quo that we've got at the moment Um, whatever way you look at it that alternative is completely undesirable for everyone concerned we need to go forward with a greener more equitable um, future and you only get that through
0: political discourse alternative media and protest Absolutely. And I think that leads us nicely onto our last topic for today. Um, The leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, as I said, again, at the top of the show, he has now been in office for a whole year. Um, He obviously beat Rebecca Long-Bailey, the uh, successor or the chosen successor of the left. Um, It was very much a uh pitted as a competition between the right and the left of the party but actually when you look at the makeup of the campaigns it was far more complicated than that and far more nuanced but um certainly that's how it was pitted by the press but obviously a year on there has been a number of controversy contra controversies there we go he got it out um there's been a number of uh polls as well and we'll get into them but there is uh keir starmer is his uh First year in office. Callum, what's your take on it as a Labour Party member?
4: I think it's been disappointing. Uh, as, I've said, as I've said before, that there's room for improvement. He is the leader of the Labour Party. he got a massive uh, mandate from the membership and so on. He's still got many of the advantages that I think he was elected for, you know, um, he can be a good communicator when he wants to be. Um, and I think he wouldn't have to even work too hard to win back some of the the goodwill from members of labor members they're, they're quite pragmatic people. Um, they only need you know to just believe that we're going in a, in a certain direction for the most part. I think the trouble is that over the last year we have been a little bit. Uh, directionless at a national level, um, which is uh, which is unfortunate. Uh, and he he had when he was first elected all of the cards, he had a lot of goodwill from membership. Remember that a third of the people who voted for Corbyn also voted for Starmer um, and his pitch was that he wanted to be the friendly face of Corbynism, basically, um, and he could still do that, um, but. Most of the last year has been spent on internal squabbling, most of which, some of which may have been necessary or unavoidable, but I don't think most of it has. Obviously, the most egregious one was uh, the incident with Jeremy Corbyn, which is where I think we start to see Starmer's poll numbers declining, was Jer- because Jeremy Corbyn was actually quite popular, um, especially with at least with under forties. As as I think you'll see from from the polls, um, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn was initially suspended is, isn't even really the issue because you know he had said uh, some things which were deemed to be problematic or or offensive, but then he went through the the proper um, disciplinary procedures as a consequence of that and um, said that the they said the party said there was no case to answer uh, from a balanced panel advised by a barrister. Um, And then Stam have very petulantly then excluded him from the PLP and nothing's really happened since. So that was uh, an unfortunate incident. Uh, So, uh, and I believe that policy things have been going on in the background. I'm hopeful, as I said, said before, sometimes you need to remember that the first year of Jeremy Corbyn, didn't see a huge amount of solid policy. Um, In fact, I remember locally um, when the chicken coup occurred and Jeremy Corbyn was being challenged, the motion that we passed um, in the CLP to support him and and condemn the actions of the Parliamentary Labour Party also included uh, a beseechment uh, to him and the, and the, the leadership team, if you like, the NEC, uh, to start working on more solid policies. And that was that was over a year after he had been elected. So to some extent, that's not Keir Starmer's fault. Um, but he needs to get his house in order in terms of the party's organisation. Um, members are objectively just at a very low level of morale at the moment. Um, we've lost a fifth of our membership. Um, I think that rate of decline has slowed, um, somewhat, um, I think, and I think in that respect, that is where we have some hope, um, as, as I say to everyone who will listen, um, as a CLP secretary, I think my focus over the next couple of years, if I stay in this role or, or if not, um, hopefully as councillor after May, um, and just as an activist as well, uh, is to try and push education as much as possible. Um, I think what happened with Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, is that he sort of sprang out of nowhere to some extent. Um, But the thing that you need to remember as well is that he didn't spring up out of nowhere. I, I, I deeply regret not putting that ten pound bet on that. I was that I was going to put on. I would have won a, a would have won a grand or two grand in some places. The odds were so long. The media certainly didn't see it coming. But if you were involved in the Labour Party at the time, you would have seen this as a potentially likely outcome. Um, because remember that Jeremy Corbyn won amongst long-standing activists. And these are activists who endured Ed Miliband, may have endured um, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair and all of their triangulation and so on. And they endured it because they were told that it would work, right? That if you met the Tories halfway in terms of your rhetoric, at least, and in some on some levels of your policy as well, um, then that was the path to winning elections. Um, because it had worked in 1997. Um, and there are people now running the Labour Party who seem to believe that if you can just do that with Keir Starmer, they will win. But the party membership know that doesn't work anymore. Um, and Keir Starmer doesn't even compare to Tony Blair. You know, I when I was uh, an enthusiastic politics student as a teenager, I used to watch old videos of. Tony Blair standing up at the dispatch box and calling uh, John Major weak, 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 talking about education, education, education. It was very inspiring. And there were real principles there, I believe. Some of those principles uh, were, were a lot darker, obviously. Um, you know, he, this is the man who took us into the war in Iraq but also his government in the particularly in the period from 1997 to 2001 you know that's the period where they introduced the human rights act uh, they did the ban on fox hunting, they introduced the minimum wage, although maybe it was a little bit too low, but they, but nevertheless, it was an important principle. They started rebuilding um, our infrastructure, schools and hospitals. You know, all of these good things mainly happened in the early years of new labour, right? So that's how they won. They won on a wave of optimism and there were uh, principles involved. We can't really see that with Keir Starmer at the moment. I think partially that's because the policies haven't been developed. Um, And also, I think um, the the leadership is sort of also trying to badly cosplay Tony Blair at the same time. Um, It's a very messy combination. I don't think it's going to work. Um, It will be interesting to see what happens with these elections in May. Um, If they're very bad you know, will Starmer go? I don't think so. I don't think that's a realistic um, um, prospect at all. certainly not an easy successor, but those calls will increase. Um so yeah, and it's bit it's been disappointing. As I say, he he has still has a lot of potential, you know. Uh, he has those establishment credentials, you know, he's a sir and all and all of that. If he if he was Taking this uh, issue with the policing bill, for instance, by the horns and standing up for civil rights, people would people would go with that. People would listen, um, and I really wish he would listen to the people who were telling him that—not just me, but people much more eminent, um, you know, uh, higher up in the party and in the media as well, uh, and academics and so on—who are saying he could be a real force for good, not just economically but also on civil society in defense of human rights and civil rights so i'll just say what i said before that he still has potential but he just isn't showing it yet um, and yeah that that's my hope for the next year going forwards and the next year uh, and, and the years going forwards that we can have what we need to be doing as as local activists is educating the membership Talking to uh, academics, talking to trade unions, um, having regular policy forums to discuss policy led by the people who work in those particular sectors um, so that we can develop policies which are oven ready if you want to use a a slightly problematic (laughs) phrase, Um, ready to put where appropriate into local manifestos and also to pass up to the National Party. If the National Party doesn't want to hear it, um, that's unfortunate. But at least going through the exercise of formulating this policy will itself educate our members uh, and ensure that they are better equipped to take advantage when conditions do change at the top of the party. And in Westminster, as we have seen in the last five or six years, they can change very rapidly, um, and we need to be ready for when that happens.
0: Absolutely. And I think that issue around policy is, is so crucial. When I first joined the Labour Party, it was because of that manifesto in 2017, that inspired me because i saw a party that was willing to stand up and fight for the important issues and make the the necessary changes to society to make it fairer for everyone obviously as you say we're only a well as we know we're only a year into the starmer leadership and if you draw some comparisons to the corbyn leadership it's very much a similar sort of position but we do need an enthusiastic membership that's willing to fight for a vision. Whatever that vision is, it's sometimes hard to work out and hard to distill. So I sincerely hope that we can go forward into whenever the next general election is. Obviously, we have these local elections and we'll talk about them in a moment. But I think that we need to really go into a general election as a party with policies that offer a new alternative for people policies that offer hope so that's that's what the labor party is all about it's about standing up for ordinary people and bringing policies of positive transformation and making lives better for everyone that's what we need to be doing with i ollie I'm, I'm intrigued to get your perspective as somebody that isn't a party member because obviously you've heard from Two people that have been members of the Labour Party for some time now. So, what what's your take on on one year of Keir?
1: Well, um, I, I would share Callum's kind of views there to to say that I was I was disappointed really um, when you know when he was pitched as a as a candidate for for um, leader of the opposition, he. He, would, um, he was assumed by many to kind of just automatically do better than, than Corbyn did and, you know, instantly be ahead in, in the approval ratings, um, you know, as, as Callum says, you know, Corbynism with a friendly face. Um, and yes, he is, he don't, uh, sorry, yes, he identifies as a socialist, um, but whether you asked, if you asked, uh, you know, a normal, ordinary working person, maybe perhaps on the, of a, a Labour voter as well, you know, working class. Whether they feel represented by Keir Starmer, I really, I don't know what the answer would be. I don't want to presume, but I'd, I'd be quite surprised if they said, um, you know, he absolutely represents me. I agree with um, everything he says, kind of, kind of, kind of thing. Um, and I, I think, you know, this this past year has really kind of thrown into um, thrown into doubt what his priorities are as a as a politician but you know also as the the leader of, of the the biggest political party in europe and i think he forgets that sometimes i think um you know he uh, he is kind of prioritizing um people that used to support the labor party i would say in in the blairite years you know um and you know more wealthy people not necessarily working class people um, and yeah, I would say kind of trying to appeal to that, that kind of blaris slant. Um, I think it's important to know, you know, he's quite, uh, he's not been an MP for very long, um, and also it was quite, um, profound the way he came to be, um, when it was back in the days of, of, um, of the Brexit referendum and it's important to know where he came from on that because he was, when, when the vote got passed, you know, 52% to 48% in the in the uh, Brexit referendum, um, he was one of the very few, um, you know, Labour MPs. He was amongst a minority calling for a second referendum to kind of overturn the mandate of, of the referendum. Um, so I think that's quite interesting. I think a lot of people kind of forget that's where he, he came from almost as a politician. Um but, you know, whether he represents working class people, I think, you know, maybe we've yet to see, but it certainly doesn't look like it um, to me, I would say, as someone who's kind of on the outside of the the Labour Party. Um, I think, I don't think it can be talked about how he's performed as a as leader of the opposition without talking about um, coronavirus and the mishandling of, of coronavirus by the government. Um, it should have been, I would say, a year of, you know, not necessarily just scoring political points and and you know a year for party politics but i think he could have absolutely held the government um, much better to account um, on a lot of issues really
0: mm. and i think that's been one of the biggest things levied against him he's been yes very clinical um in some of his uh, questions in Prime Minister's questions, and he knows his brief, but he hasn't knocked the Tories out of the park despite the fact that they've got nearly 150,000 deaths on their hands. He hasn't been very good when um, the economy is faltering and people are being thrown out of their homes. He's been very late to react and actually fight people's corner. And that's and that's an issue that a lot of people have identified. Now, I, I'm looking forward to when we're outside of, of just COVID dominating the headlines and being the sole interest of, of politics to see how he actually performs. And obviously, one of the first things that we've got that would give us a taste of that is the local elections, where COVID is less on the agenda. The classic line that we've had over the last few years, it's not about Brexit, it's about bins um it's in again it's it's probably it's more about the council and less about covid this time round but i I, just to finish off as i i see we're we're running out of time rapidly but just to finish off how do we see labor doing in the upcoming by-elections we have westminster by-elections but we also have a Uh, set of local elections up and down the country in some places such as Lincoln there are three different elections going on on the same day uh, a month away as it goes from now so how do we see our the the Labour Party performing and what would that mean for the next year Callum
4: well I think we've got a very strong organization locally um I think as I was alluding to earlier, you know, we've got a quite quite a strong local activist base. Um we've kept most of our uh, core activists at, at um and officers uh in the party. Um we're standing candidates not just in the city, um, but also of course, as you mentioned, the county elections are going on as well. So we're standing candidates across the county, not a full slate. I don't think um, we're going to quite manage that, but we will be standing across all of Lincoln and also nice North Castlevon, um, and as I say most of the rest of the uh, county. Um, so you should, if you live in Lincolnshire, there's a very good chance you'll have a chance to vote Labour. Um, the Liberal Democrats have basically collapsed um, over the last 10 years out in the county, um, so really if you're a progressive you should, you've got no should have no qualms really um voting for labor against the appalling complacency of the conservatives locally um in government and also if you just want to give them a slap in the face as well for their uh, appalling equally appalling handling of or much worse handling of the poll, uh, uh, of the pandemic i suppose given it killed <laughs> 130,000 people um maybe that's uh, a little bit more serious um than the way that they've allowed our um roads to go to rack and ruin um and you know mess around with our schools um, and sets unrealistically far off targets for uh for uh, tackling climate change uh cl- tried to close down our libraries succeeded in many cases um, and just generally treating our public services with disdain while squirreling money away for a rainy day. When, even when it comes, um, they choose to spend it on giving business grants to their mates. Um, there was, I think people need to know as well if they're not aware of it, um, there was an instance in the, in the council chamber where they were voting on. Um, the uh, business grants that they were going to give to local businesses. Not necessarily a bad idea, by the way, in principle, um, to, to cope with COVID, um, but there were about a dozen or so uh, Tories who, to be fair to them, declared an interest and were still allowed to vote. So um, that's a, uh, if that's an example of the sort of cronyism that goes on in Lincolnshire. Um, so yeah, give, please do, I'm going to candidate myself, full disclosure, I'm standing in Eagle and, uh, and West Highcombe, which includes, um, Skellingthorpe, which is near Lincoln. And so if you're listening, please do vote for me. I'm standing for the Labour and cooperative parties. I think I should also mention that Callum is a candidate as well, um, in Swallowbeck and Witham for the county. Um, we've also got, um... City elections going on at the same time, um, in Lincoln, um, so if you think we've been doing a good job, you know we're trying to been trying to protect local businesses as best we can throughout the pandemic. I think we've been doing that very competently. Um, I know I want to forge closer links between the community and the university. That's something I feel very passionate about. Um, and uh, also, yeah, yeah, I could talk about lots of local things as well that maybe not not necessarily be relevant to people who live uh, out outside of Lincoln. But you know, doing the restoration of Booton Park, generally speaking, the the restoration of the city centre. loads and loads of stuff. You know, do do get in in, in contact with me. Um, if you've got uh, questions about those sorts of things but um, we've had a very, very very good campaign logistically it's been an absolute uh, nightmare because of all of the uh, weird overlapping boundaries and but I think we've handled it well we're, we're in a good place now and I think um, we've got a good chance of um, uh, of, of winning some seats back because the ermine uh, and cathedral uh, which is in the north of the city i think um we only lost that by uh, 16 votes a couple of years ago uh, during the last county elections and then Hartshome in the south we only lost it by 22 so um, i'm very very hopeful of seizing those uh, back from the tories and maybe having a clean sweep at least in the city of lincoln lincoln um if you look across the country uh, there are every county council, I believe, is controlled by the Tories. But there are much, much bigger Labour um, Labour groups on them that are very effective, uh, and that's the position we would at least like to get to in these local elections. So that hopefully the next time local elections roll down, roll around, or if there are local government reforms in the next four years, um, we'll be able to take control of those important, vital uh, local services. Um, and start uh, delivering them competently for the people of Lincoln and Lincolnshire and not just squirreling away money like some uh, bilious dragon uh, that that, uh, Martin Hill uh, almost seems to appear in my mind whenever I see him. It's just him sitting on top of a pile of cash, £270 million, I think, enough to run um, the council for something like six months without even any other... Uh, income coming in um, absolutely uh, absurd when you're living in a time of crisis uh, people dying all around you and you can't be bothered to I- invest in your local economy completely appalling Labour would manage this a lot, lot more effectively does manage it a lot more effectively uh, on the City Council and I, I hope you'll give a, a, an adjustment I know that's a bit different to the sort of critique that you know, I normally give on this podcast but uh, um, yeah please do back us uh, in those elections because, uh, the Tories, they just can't, they just don't deserve your vote, frankly. Um, given what we've had the last year and a half, indeed the last decade. So
0: absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to, to end the podcast there. I'd say that after the elections, I think we should definitely do a post-mortem, whatever it looks like and see, uh, what what's happened not just in the city and the county, but indeed across the country, because I think it will have a, a lot to say about the mood of the the public and where the Labour Party and indeed progressive parties are sitting in public views, um, just on the local elections. As Callum said, I am standing as well, uh, and and very much hoping to take uh, Swallowbeck and Witham despite the uphill battle that it seems there is certainly a mood for change out there and we are the party of change. So we'll end the show on there. So I've been Callum Roper. Thank you very much for listening. I've been joined by Ollie Walwyn. Goodbye, everyone. Take care. And I've been joined by Mr. Callum Watt.
4: Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe. Members, join a union. We forgot to say that. Should say it in every podcast, shouldn't we? (laughs) Join a union, keep yourself safe, protect yourself and others, um, and see you next time.
0: Fantastic. On that note, thank you for listening to Podcast 1201, and we will see you again next week.